Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Who could have imagined just a few weeks ago that we would now find ourselves in such dark times? Here in California, as in many parts of the nation and world, the streets are eerily empty. We are staying home, glued to the news on how the COVID-19 pandemic is unfolding. It is truly inspiring, though, to see how people from every imaginable walk of life are working together, without being in the same room often and without getting in their cars, to meet this monumental challenge with grace, creativity, and vigor. It's also a time where we are being forced to focus on the basics of life. Food, family, shelter, our health, and of course, where to find toilet paper. In this episode of Podship Earth, we focus on three of those elements, food, family, and health. I meet up with Anna LaPay, a food systems and sustainable food advocate. By way of introduction, Anna's mom, Frances Moore LaPay, is the author of the 1971 book Diet for a Small Planet, which sold more than 3 million copies and revolutionized the way we think about food and democracy. Together, mother and daughter, Frances and Anna LaPay, co-founded the Small Planet Institute, an international network for research and popular education about the root causes of hunger and poverty. Anna LaPay is the author of Diet for a Hot Planet, Grub, Ideas for an Urban Organic Kitchen, and Hope's Edge, co-written with her mother, Frances. I start by asking Anna if her family is originally from France. I thought when I was a kid for the longest time, of course, I thought I was French, which seemed really exciting. But uh, I learned as learning about my family history that we were actually Russian Jewish radicals. And you're still pretty radical. Yes, yes. I would say I'm still pretty radical. And I feel like I do come from a pretty radical lineage, both to me, the definition of radical is that you are curious to go to the roots of the crises that face us. And not only do you go to those roots, but then when you discover what those roots are, you try to do something to change them. So my parents were both very radical and my grandparents, great grandparents. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting here with two books. One is your mom's diet for a small planet. And we'll talk about yours diet for a hot planet. Your mom, Frances, was right here. I mean, in Berkeley in the early 70s, became kind of obsessed with looking at protein. And she went to the library and basically came out with this entire theory that blew away, you know, years and years, decades of thinking about that there wasn't enough food on the planet. And she was like, no, there's plenty of food. There's just not enough democracy and distribution. Like growing up in that environment, do you, do you remember those times? What I always take away from my mother's story is both the need for all of us to keep asking those deep questions of why, why is this happening and and how do we actually fix it from its roots, but also I think a lesson about the power of uh, what Buddhists call the beginner's mind. 
I think about it in the story of Jane Goodall. You know, there she was actually discovering what the experts literally couldn't see because they had the blinders of their expertise. And I think the story of my mother is the same thing. She was this young woman who uh, was discovering these answers to these deep questions by looking at the evidence, and she didn't have the blinders of any expertise around her. And I think that is a really powerful lesson to be learned no matter what you care about. And the apple didn't fall that far from the tree. I was having a conversation with someone who also is doing very similar work to his uh, parents. And he said, he put it this way. He was like, you know, there is so much in the world to rebel against. I didn't need to rebel against the politics of my parents. And I feel that way as well. Uh, but I will say, personally, this... This work wasn't what I thought I would do when I was younger. We were almost upon the 30th anniversary year of my mother's best-selling book, This Book Diet for a Small Planet. And like a lot of children, I had a really clear sense of what my mother should do with her life, maybe not such a clear sense about my own. And I sat her down in New York City and said, Mom, you have to write the sequel to this book. You touched so many lives, but you really left an unanswered question, which is that if your core thesis was that the problem of hunger is a problem of democracy, then you left open this question of, then what is democracy and, and what does real democracy look like and how do we build communities where there is the kind of democratic engagement that will actually create healthy communities where people are not hungry and they get access to good, healthy food. So we said you should write a sequel exploring that question. And she said, I'll do this book if you will be my research assistant. So I was in grad school at the time and ended up signing on to work on this book with her. And I went from research assistant to then be the co-author of this book together. Co-authoring this book together was, for me, the life-changing experience that made me realize that I wanted to work for food systems transformation for the rest of my life. So what were those powerful like, what were the realizations sitting there working on the book with your mom? Yeah. So for that book, we traveled together to India, Poland, Kenya, France, Brazil, Bangladesh, and several places in the U.S. And we remain friends to this day. Everywhere we went and everybody we met would have been a life-changing moment, put it all together even more so. In the course of a year, have this intimate close-up view of both the potential around the world to really actually grow food in ways that's good for communities and good for people, but also to see the incredible global reach and impact of U.S.-based food companies, food and chemical companies, to see it all so clearly. You see the spread of a really highly processed diet that's been terrible for our health that is going global. The other thing we really saw was uh, the impact of U.S. policies, so trade policies and aid policies and development policies. I know there was an in-between books, but mm -hmm. the diet for a hot planet, reading it after your mom's book feels very much also like a sequel. I wanted to name it Diet for a Hot Planet to be very explicit about the lineage of the work. And what I talk about in Diet for a Hot Planet is fundamentally that in addition to the social and economic costs that my mother described in Diet for a Small Planet of a very industrialized food system that's dependent on chemical inputs, dependent on synthetic fertilizer, that's about extracting resources from nature, not working with nature, that in addition to those costs that she described almost 50 years ago, that there is this other cost, which is the climate impact. 
And I started writing Diet for Hot Planet because I read a study that blew my mind. It was the first global assessment of emissions related to livestock. It was called Livestock's Long Shadow. It was done by the United Nations. It found that livestock-related emissions were responsible for more of the climate impact than all transportation combined. And what we see in the food system are the kinds of solutions that would reduce food sector emissions are also those solutions that are better for farmer health, better for our health, better for biodiversity, better for all the things that we also care about. And that by talking about food as part of the climate conversation, we really have an opportunity to showcase food as really a key solution. But you don't have any recipes at the end. <laughs> Your mom had a lot of recipes. I was, I was thinking like, I wonder why Anna didn't put recipes in there. That is so funny. Yes. No, there was big debate. Do the recipes go in? Do they not go in? And uh, in between these books uh, that we've already talked about, I actually wrote a cookbook with a colleague, Bryant Terry, and that has recipes. It's called Grub. I love there's a whole section that you have um, on different myths, and mm -hmm. some of them pick up from kind of what your mom had talked about earlier. Maybe talk us through the the myths that are out there about food systems, because they're so prevalent. These myths kind of help me understand how we can think about food from a different frame. So maybe walk us through them. I have six here. And of course, there are more out there. As you hear these myths, you might notice parallels between the same kind of obstructionist myth making around the energy sector. These are myths that are constructed by the industries that have a stake in the status quo, and that if we really were to shift food systems to a kind of global food system that reduces greenhouse gas emissions, there would be an economic cost to uh, a number of multi-billion dollar industries. And so these are myths that are constantly being constructed. So for instance, one of the key myths we hear often is what I call the inevitability myth. In other words, this myth that industrial agriculture defined by this very input intensive system is the only realistic path. There is no alternative. The second myth we hear a lot is this false trade-off myth, this idea that we have to choose between having sustainable farms and protecting our forests. In other words, this myth that sustainable farming is land extensive. And so if we need to protect forests, which we need to do, and most people are getting that around climate, that the only way to do that is to have more industrial farms. And that's one myth that I have been really trying to, to bring down because what we are seeing on the power of agroforestry, that actually there are really fabulous ways to be growing trees that are also helping food systems and that actually are food producing. So another of the myths that you have is the poverty myth, which is won't climate friendly farming curse people with unending poverty? You hear that a lot. And what what's the answer to that? Because part of it is that food systems seem complex, Anna. And so at first blush, you're like, oh, well, we don't want unending poverty. So maybe they're right. Right. Well, uh, yes, no, exactly. That's that's why that's such a powerful myth. And what comes to mind immediately are the voices of these farmers that I was just meeting who are part of a network called the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa. It has membership in almost every African country. And what they were telling me is that the way of farming that that many of us are describing as sustainable or regenerative, there's lots of terms for it, that is the 
opposite of input intensive. It's knowledge intensive. It's working with natural systems. It's actually using the farm to uh, manage your pests, not spraying them with pesticides. These farmers were telling me that they have seen in the communities where they're working the incredible economic benefit that actually this is bringing economic activity to communities. And so I think that we've been sold this myth that by farming without these quote unquote modern chemicals, that we are cursing farmers to poverty and certainly not what we're seeing. And certainly when you look at the farm crisis in this country today, we're seeing that the current model, it's not like our farmers are doing well here. This next one is very connected. Um, Your fourth myth, which is the prosperity first myth. So Basically, it says, don't people need to be prosperous before they can even think about the environment? This is like, it's a rich person's luxury Mm -hmm. to think about the environment and why, why are we pushing our values on other people? All these myths boil my blood, but maybe that one perhaps the most, because everywhere we went, we were meeting with some of the most radical social movements that had a deep, deep passion for protecting the environment, and we're working on an environmental justice perspective. And they were some of the poorest people, cash poor people, and yet they were have an incredible environmental radical ethic. It just makes me furious when I hear people push that message, because certainly not the case from, again, when you actually see what's happening on the ground and who are the leaders who are really uh, pushing for care for the environment, care for the land. And in that context, I think, environmental justice is the most powerful lens that we have right now. And as a movement, it's the one that really reflects actual communities, actual people on the ground. So the next myth, which is the one you hear about kind of starting the Malthusian myth, your mom kind of breaks it open, is the hunger myth, which is can sustainable agriculture really feed the world? Right. So this is the myth that poor woman my mother has been fighting for almost 50 years now, and still going at it. And she wrote, I think, the like the book that if you want to understand food, it should be on everybody's bookshelf. It's called World Hunger 12 Myths. And she just updated it. Uh, so the new edition is World Hunger 10 Myths. And I said, oh, mom, you beat two myths. Good job. She said, no, not exactly. We just consolidated them into 10. So there's still these myths are still out there. But I really recommend that book, World Hunger, uh, because it does go systematically through all of these myths. And to me, I think this is such a persistent myth, because who among us would want to think that the kind of systems change we're advocating for is going to make somebody hungry, right? Nobody wants to feel like they're pushing something that for for whom that would be the case. And so it's, um, it's a powerful myth. And again, what we're seeing is frankly just the opposite. Uh, In other words, what we're seeing of the modern food system that is producing this highly processed, um, high fat, high sugar, all the stuff that's bad for us diets, it's actually really pushing some of the leading causes of disease today. So when my mother was writing 50 years ago, really she was at the forefront and really I think had a lot of foresight about where we were headed. Today, the latest Lancet study I saw found that seven of the 10 leading causes of deaths worldwide were diet-related, including alcohol, but they were diet-related. We're also seeing that hunger is persisting. We still have more than 800 million people going hungry. And so to say that trying to think about a different system or organizing things differently uh, might not work. I think the onus should also be on the shoulders of those promoting the current system to defend a global system that is clearly so broken. 
The last one is the technology myth, which is don't we need biotechnology to save us from climate change? I really tried to approach this from the perspective of, look, I'm going to take a beginner's mind to this. I really want to explore this. I'm not going to prejudge the answer. If there is the potential for a technology to help us create more drought-resistant seeds, more flood-resistant seeds, look, we are at a point of crisis. I'm certainly open to that possibility. And what I discovered in having these very this open process of searching is that every expert I talked to who knows much more than I do about biotechnology and about genetics was really helpful in getting me to understand that when you talk about the kinds of traits that we would need for more climate resilience, things like uh, being able to handle droughts or being able to be more resistant to flooding, they are highly complex traits in a plant. And to genetically engineer for that, all of these experts were saying is from and from their perspective, then kind of next to impossible, very pie in the sky thinking. And on the other hand, what I was hearing from folks on the ground who were researching and piloting new experiments of working with farmers on the ground to breed in natural ways for resilience, to be growing crops uh, from seeds that were um, better in droughts, better in floods. Okay, so we've done myths. You've also got five ingredients of climate-friendly farming. The first ingredient is nature mentored. You just talked about that, which is following the real leader. The second is restorative, bringing the farm back to life. The third is regenerative, mitigating climate change on the farm. The fourth is resilient, food for the future too. And the fifth is community empowered, which is promoting sustainability in economics. So how did you think about this ingredient list? As I was talking to farmers and researchers about what are the practices they are seeing that are going to save us, <laughs> that are going to continue to be able to feed us in the future, that those ingredients kept bubbling up. And that last one, which is about economics, I think was a really important one for me to add, because I feel like when a lot of us talk about food, we often talk about the practice of farming and how do you build soil carbon content and how do you deal with insects that want to eat your crops without spraying them with a brain-damaging insecticide. What I saw again and again is that if you don't have an economic system that supports farmers that are doing something differently, then none of this can work. So when that farmer goes to that rural bank and says, hey, I'm an organic farmer and I want $10,000 for a greenhouse, or that farmer doesn't say, I don't understand what you're talking about. We don't know what organic farming is. We'll give you half a million dollars if you want to have a confined chicken operation because we know what that is. But this organic farming, we don't know. And so again, it's all these things that aren't about farming, but that are really about changing the system that we need to talk about. And economics is a key piece. Because in your mom's book, economics was a key piece in terms of subsidies. We're, and those subsidies 50 years later are still in place. We're still subsidizing these fossil fuel inputs, whether it's fertilizers or pesticides, to put nitrogen into the soil. You know, all these things seem to be continually subsidized. How do we break that cycle? What you hear in talking to farmers is the reason why many of them farm this way and make choices that don't conserve soil uh, quality, that don't promote biodiversity, is because those of subsidies that you mentioned, but also huge other policies like the crop insurance program. So we have crop insurance, which is great, right? It's protecting our farmers in times of crisis, you know, particularly now when there's so many times of crisis. But those crop insurance schemes basically penalize farmers for 
doing some of the basic things we want to see farmers do, for instance, rotate crops. So not just doing corn and soy, but adding different rotations. So it's not just subsidies, it's crop insurance, it's things like the money for school food goes. And so one of the huge initiatives that I've been involved with is a new procurement policy mechanism to liberate school districts to say, look, you don't have to pick the cheapest bidder. You can actually start looking at food suppliers that reflect your values and and how that can change markets. What is the food industrial complex? Why is this system so hard to change? How did we get to this place where just a few companies control what we eat, how we think about food, our health, the planet's health? To me, it's it's the same story in all these sectors that we need to take on to address the climate change, which is that we went from producing food in a way that worked with nature to actually produce highly abundant amounts of food to actually create a really extractive industry. So every component of the modern industrial food complex relies at its base on fossil fuels or extraction. And so you look at um, the origins of that, you know, you can trace it back to uh, the exploitation of labor and the beginnings of the industrialization of food really coming out of the owner class really saying, you know what, actually, we want to replace these workers with machines, and we're going to use fossil fuels to do it, no problem. Replacing livestock work, of course, with heavy machinery as well, that we're going to replace our workers who could actually manage weeds. Uh, we're going to replace that with petroleum-based pesticides. And, you know, post-World War II, realizing there was this whole chemical arsenal that had been developed for warfare during World War II, and all those chemical companies realizing there was a huge untapped market in agriculture for those chemicals. And that really was the birth of chemical agriculture as we know it that, of course, Rachel Carson saw, you know, in the early 60s um, so powerfully and what the consequences would be. So, you know, we're really talking about a whole mindset around our relationship to nature and also our relationship to, to labor and also to the wisdom of the centuries and centuries, I mean, the thousands and thousands of years of knowledge that had produced this global food web that was highly productive. And I think there has been such a denigration across all industries, not just food, but such a denigration of that indigenous wisdom, but particularly in agriculture. And as a result, we have this kind of worship of so-called innovation of modern farming that's so recent. And so much of the damage is already so clear. But to remember that there is this ancient wisdom that is so powerful and not considered part of the solution. Your mom, she had a big emphasis on not eating meat mm. or eating less meat. Yeah. What part does that play? Talking about meat and dairy consumption is hugely important, but it's really important to do it precisely and do it well. You know, we talk about climate change. It's a global problem. When we talk about food, that plays itself out very differently in different countries. So for instance, around meat and dairy, the U.S. is one of the highest consumers of meat and dairy in the world. We're eating about twice as much protein as our bodies need and actually can even use. And so you don't store protein. It doesn't kind of benefit you in any way. And so essentially, that's food waste. We are producing all of this protein for no reason. Since my mother wrote Diet for a Small Planet, of this industrial scale, industrial style, animal agriculture, which is taking animals off the farm, relying on input feed, 
then because you have so many animals in one place, their manure then is captured and that manure releases methane that you have now so many uh, cattle that are ruminants, which naturally produce methane when they digest food. And the World Resources Institute just came out with a new study looking at trend lines. And they were saying if other countries follow in the wake of the United States and kind of take our diets to heart and start eating the way we do, we will blow our carbon budget in the next few decades. So it's very important to talk about meat and dairy. The reason why I say we need to be precise and we need to to speak about it well is because there are many parts in the world that still integrate livestock in a completely sustainable way onto their land. There are many cultures around the world for whom meat and dairy is a central part of their spirituality, of their culture. You know, to say that you must kill that part of your spirituality or culture in order to adhere to a particular diet is absurd to me. Uh, On the other hand, to say to the typical American, hey, you need to, starting today, eat a lot less meat and dairy is a very important message. One of the things that kind of struck me in in the book was one that the farm industrial complex is targeting us very precisely with messages and ways of really making sure that we're not changing our food habits. Yeah. So this has been a curiosity of mine for now two decades is to really understand the forces behind what we think about the food we eat. And what I like to emphasize is that it's really important that none of this comes across as a kind of finger wagging, you know, you should be eating differently and it's your fault that you're not eating more healthy food, that really we are all existing in environments that are encouraging us, both in terms of what's available, what we can afford, but also in terms of marketing to make certain choices. And so I particularly have been focused on the extent to which food companies market to children and publicly funded researchers did the analysis were able to show without a doubt and if you have children you know this that children are unable to distinguish between an advertisement and information they literally do not have the cognitive ability and so by definition marketing to children is marketing misinformation marketing to children by definition is propaganda when my older daughter was because she was like two or three you know she came home and she had absolutely fallen in love with Dora. I was like, I never bought anything with Dora. We never showed her any, I don't even know where she found Dora, but fell in love with Dora. And I was- Dora the Explorer. Explorer. Yes, any parents, I'm like, aren't you all on a first name basis with Dora? Dora the Explorer. And, you know, I looked into it and I was like, well, she seems like actually this kind of lovely character, kind of a strong girl, intrepid explorer. And I thought, "This this isn't that bad for my daughter to love Dora. And then I started seeing Dora on Band-Aids. I thought, okay, I'll get Dora Band-Aids, right? My, my daughter had meltdowns over the Dora Band-Aids. And then, you know, Dora started going on packages of this and that food. And like many children's beloved characters, Dora started being used to try to sell my daughter food that wasn't what I would have bought for her, wanted to buy for her, and, you know, became a source of tension between my daughter and me. And that's just a micro example. On the other side, these same companies have a lot of environmental or sustainability claims about their food, like nature-based and environmentally friendly. And like, there's a lot of greenwashing. So how do we, you know, as a mom, as a parent, how do you even navigate that? If you're trying to 
steer away from the the targeted food. It's really important for people to not be so cynical that they don't believe any claims at all, because hard work has been done by countless farmers and advocates to try to, in this country, push for and win an organic certification that does tell you some things, not everything, but that does tell you some things about how your food was produced and is something that I, as a consumer, seek out in the marketplace. It is also important for us to really educate ourselves about how much misinformation is out there to reveal how much stealth marketing happens, how much misinformation is going on in ways that are precisely structured so that we as the everyday person don't realize that behind it is actually uh, a food company or an industry, say a pesticide company or some another um, aspect of the food industry. And some of those tactics, we've seen it from the fossil fuel industry as well. It's things like creating fake organizations that have names like the Center for Food Integrity that sound really great, but it's actually a front group that's funded by the food industry. There's a lot of that going on, and we're only going to see more of it. That's really concerning to me. I saw shampoo the other day that said it's gluten-free and (laughs) vegan. Does your shampoo need to be? The claims have nothing to do, completely irrelevant, or just very vague, nature-based. Right. Yeah. And I will say for the record that nature-based or natural has no official definition. So uh, you are perfectly in your right mind to be cynical of seeing any label that says natural or nature-based. How do you not become cynical? Yeah. Well, I guess I'm, I, <laughs> I am cynical too. There is only so much that we can do as individuals. What it really comes down to when we talk about food is we really need to be looking at system change. I mean, you know, you think about it in terms of the energy sector. I mean, I can want to have green energy for my house as much as possible. I can put up solar panels, which I did. But at the end of the day, if my grid is still connected to dirty energy, I'm still connected to dirty energy. And the same is true around food. And I, I don't feel like it helps any of us for us individually to feel a sense of, you know, what I'm putting on my table tomorrow isn't the perfect climate-friendly plate. It won't be, and it can't be until we actually change the system. You posit we can either have a food system that exacerbates climate change, or we can have a food system that helps us solve the climate crisis that we're in. How do we think about that, even from a public policy perspective? Like, What are those choices that allow us to go either down the road of exacerbating the problem or healing the planet. What we're seeing uh, is a lot of really innovative policy that is emerging around the world that's showing that actually there are some really big levers you can pull. So in the U.S., we're spending in this country billions of public dollars on on food and uh, a lot of that through our school system. And so in 2012, uh, the Los Angeles Food Policy Council looked at what would it look like to generate a policy that actually called upon a school district to say, don't just take the cheapest bidder, don't just look at nothing else about the production quality of the food, but look at uh, your food supply chain through a values lens. And so it's five values, not just the environment, but also worker well-being, also animal welfare, also nutrition, also local economies and local economic development. And underlying those values are the principles of transparency, you know, showing us the community whose dollars these are, where these dollars are going. When that policy passed in the city of Los Angeles, the chicken contract was coming up for renewal. 
It was on the order of magnitude of a $60 million contract. And because this policy was in place, and because the community had organized to pass the policy, they actually could activate this network to go to the board and say, look, we're calling on you to be accountable to this policy and to be transparent about who's getting these dollars. And the chicken company that got the bid in the end had a whole set of better practices, including promising and committing to and showing that they wouldn't use antibiotics in the poultry processing. Since then, we've seen a shift in the whole poultry industry and a growing awareness and growing claims around reducing antibiotic use in poultry across the whole supply chain. It was one piece of a market's change that we're starting to see now ripple out across the country. So given the kind of dire predictions that we get from science about where we're headed climate-wise, how do we transform the food system quick enough mm -hmm. to help be part of the solution? So the only way we're going to transform food quick enough to make it part of the solution is the, the same way that we're going to see that in the energy sector, any of you know those massive sectors that need to change. And that has to come from the state. It has to come from the government. It has to come from massive shifts in policy and incentives. One of the ways we're going to see that massive policy shift is beta testing these policies at the city level, at county level, at the state level. What would policies look like for farmers in California to incentivize them to do the right thing? Could this be that snowball that really does, in, say, five years, get us to the kinds of changes we need? So what would your daughter's sequel to your and your mother's book be called? Oh my gosh. Well, I hope my daughter's sequel to our books is a book of abstract paintings and poetry because we've solved all of these problems and we can just focus on the arts and music. And, and it was funny when my mother and I were writing, I flipped open a book on Indian agriculture and I turned to my mother. I said, mom, do you know what the word Anna means in Indian Sanskrit? And she said, no. I said, mom, you know, it means food. And she said, oh, my God, I had no idea. You know, so there we were exactly 30 years later. I was 26. You know, she was 26 when she wrote Diet for a Small Planet and writing this book about food. And then I had my first daughter and I named her Ida after Ida Tarbell. And I was talking to my mom and she said, Anna, do you know what Ida means? It's the goddess of food. It's <laughs> like, oh, my God, we can't get away from it. A huge thank you to Anna LaPay for talking with us today. The clarity Anna has around the systems that need to change in order for us to move towards healthier food for all really helped me understand both the enormity of the challenge and the opportunity for creative, farmer-supportive policies. As we continue to battle the COVID-19 pandemic, we are learning to never take our health for granted. And as we think about the economic stimulus that we needed to rebuild our communities, let's focus on policies that encourage equity, health, and reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. In the next episode of Podship Earth, we walk and talk with Arlene Bloom, who is a mountaineer, the first American to climb Annapurna, a leading scientist, and a fearless advocate for removing toxic chemicals like flame retardants from everyday products. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, I hope you stay safe and healthy during these very difficult times. And finally, here's a public service announcement from our friends from Shaun of the Dead. If you can, stay at home, have a cup of tea, and wait for all this to blow over. 
Above all, don't be a twat about things. We're all in this together. Don't be selfish. Look after each other. Give someone a call if you think they might be lonely. Okay? How are you doing? I'm running out of toilet paper.